Welcome to Rebellious Christian Philosophy. My name is Luke Smith. I hope you enjoy the show today. I would like to draw your attention to the idea of unity within the body of Christ, unity within the church. And one of the best places in the scripture where we can look at this idea is in the epistle to the Philippians, Paul's epistle to the church of Philippi. And you will find that in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Paul wrote this letter to his close friends in Philippi from his Roman house arrest described at the end of Acts 28, verses 30 through 31, as he waited for his court appearance before Caesar around the year 61 AD. The church in Philippi was founded 11 years before this letter on his second missionary journey, found in Acts 16, verses 11 through 40. This was the first church established on the continent of Europe. Paul is writing to the saints within the church and the governmental structure within the church of Philippi. The church of Philippi had taken up an offering for him and sent him a very generous offering. It was brought to him by Epaphroditus, who on the way became very sick and almost died. But he brought to Paul this gift from the hearts of those in Philippi. And Paul then writes a letter of thanksgiving and gratitude to this church for their Christ-like behavior toward him. Now, this letter differs from the other Pauline epistles, really because it isn't necessarily writing to rebuke them for anything they are doing wrong, but just to encourage them to continue to follow Christ's example as they are doing the Lord's work. The very theme, it would seem, of this epistle is joy and friendship, and you really gather that the joy Paul had for this church and the friendship he had with them as you read this epistle. Now, as I said, the idea of unity is expressed very clearly in this epistle. It stands out in this epistle as well as other epistles in the New Testament. But this epistle in particular. The epistles now are written to the church and unity has always been the task to achieve within the church's midst. Every writer of the New Testament emphasized unity. So it has always been a goal of the church to attain unity. But the world has always tried their best to attain unity as well. Now, we're, before we jump into really the idea of the, the church's unity, we want to see what the world does. And we will contrast the world and the church with unity and division. You see, it is within man to be united. Man seeks unity on this earth. The worldly man will never find it like the godly man, though. The world will set up kingdoms, as the world has done, and they will set up nations, and they won't find unity. They will make committees and not find unity. Communities will be formed, governments will be established, and there still will never be unity like each person within those entities desires. The world has too many rebellious people to produce unity in any form. In the early years of the 20th century, G.K. Chesterton summed up the man of today and why unity can't be found in the midst of them. He sheds light on the rebellious, skeptical mind and heart the worldly man has. Chesterton says in his book Orthodoxy that the new rebel is a skeptic and will not entirely trust anything. He has no loyalty, therefore he can never really be a revolutionist. And the fact that he doubts everything really gets in his way when he wants to denounce anything. For all denunciation implies a moral doctrine of some kind. 
And the modern revolutionist doubts not only the institution he denounces, but the doctrine by which he denounces it. As a politician, he will cry out that war is a waste of life, and then as a philosopher that all life is a waste of time. A Russian pessimist will denounce a policeman for killing a peasant, and then prove by the highest philosophical principles that the peasant ought to have killed himself. A man denounces marriage as a lie, and then denounces aristocratic prolificates for treating it as a lie. He calls a flag a bauble, and then blames the oppressors of Poland or Ireland because they take away that bauble. The man of this school first goes to a political meeting, where he complains that savages are treated as if they were beasts. Then he takes his hat and umbrella and goes on to a scientific meeting, where he proves that they practically are beasts. In short, the modern revolutionist, being an infinite skeptic, is always engaged in undermining his own minds. In his book on politics, he attacks men for trampling on morality. In his book on ethics, he attacks morality for trampling on men. Therefore, the modern man in revolt has become practically useless for all purposes of revolt. By rebelling against everything, he has lost his right to rebel against anything. Chesterton shows us that there is no consistency with the worldly man. Nothing to unite the worldly man together with the other worldly man because they have no stability to begin with. There is no point of reference for the world in order to produce true unity. The world and the church are in complete contrast on this idea of unity. And what Paul shows us in verses 1 through 4 is what the world doesn't have and what the church does have and should continue to strive for. So, what the church possesses, how to have unity and how to keep it. Paul says here that if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Paul uses in verse 2, like-mindedness. He says in verse 2, same love. He says in verse 2, one accord, and as well he says one mind. Now, like-minded, it literally means to agree together, to cherish the same views, to be harmonious, to have a point of reference. Same love, the idea is equally disposed to love and be loved. One accord, literally with united souls. One mind, one in the same mind. David Gusick says that these together all speak of the same idea, a deep, abiding, internal unity among the church. And then Paul says in verse 3 that nothing should be done through selfish ambition or vainglory or conceit. The idea here is electioneering or intriguing for office, a desire to put oneself forward. He uses the word conceit, and obviously that means thinking too highly of oneself. But then he says, but do this instead of in lowliness of mind. So in contrast to being conceited is the idea. A deep sense of one's littleness. As G.K. Chesterton would say, angels can fly because they take themselves lightly. That the church, the people within the church should take themselves lightly and not think that there's someone when they're really not. 
He also says to esteem others better than himself. Now, J. Vernon McGee says that if this verse itself in verse 3 were obeyed, then it would eliminate the power struggle within the church. What Paul says in these first three verses is that we pretty much have to be other-centered. And he says in verse 4, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So once again, the idea of being other-centered. And Jesus said this is his self. He said, love our neighbors as ourself. We are the church. We are the called out ones, the ecclesia, completely different from the world. We are called out of the world from different nations and tongues. We are a very diverse group of people. In our diversity, there is to be unity, though, and this is made clear in the New Testament. Specifically, when the church is called the body of Christ. Romans, verse, or Romans chapter 12, verse 5 says, So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20 says this, But now they are many members, yet one body. We have to understand that God sent His Son to gather a people to Him. Jesus gave up His body for us, the church, so we then can be a body for Him. We are individuals, and we don't lose our individuality. But, individually, we come together to make up one body known as the church. And so Paul hints at this unity within diversity. One thing we must understand as the church, though, is that the church is only going to be effective if she's unified. If she's not unified, she will not be effective. The church needs to move forward like a unit to advance the cause and name of Jesus Christ. The church needs to be the living organism she is meant to be and produce more life as she moves forward for Christ. In order for the church to be living and moving in a healthy manner, though, she must be right in her head. The church must be unified, but that unity starts within her mind. And so Paul then says in verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The church needs to have the mind of Christ. We are the body, but in order for a body to be alive, it must have a head. And we understand from Scripture that the head of the church is Christ. Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 says, And He is the head of the body, the church. Ephesians 5 verse 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ, the head of the church. And so if the body is to be living and acting properly, then it needs to be attached and in tune to the head and mind of Jesus Christ. He says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul tells us that in order for us to be unified as the body, then individually we are going to have to think like Jesus thought. But one question to ponder, though, is, well, how did Jesus think? How did he think? Paul doesn't tell us that. He doesn't tell us how he thought. But he does tell us what his mind produced in his actions. 
Everything that Jesus did was what his father desired of him. He tells Mary, if you recall, he tells Mary and Joseph, as you recall, that himself, Jesus, must be about his father's business. He encourages his disciples to keep his commandments as he kept his father's commandments. He also tells us that he and the father are one. And so these verses that follow show what was on his mind, and that was what his father had planned for him. For God so loved the world, it tells us in John 3.16. That was the plan that the Father had for Christ. And what is what does it say here? It says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in a fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also has highly exalted him, and given a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When you look at the Father and when you look at the Son, you see perfect unity. John's Gospel tells us of this unity, this oneness they have. In the beginning was the Word, it says. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, John uses the word in the Greek language that is logos for the word word. In our English word, we translate it over to word. So the Greek word for word, for, or the Greek word is logos here, and it gives off the idea in John's usage of it of power and reason. You see, the Jews and Greeks had thought their way to the conception of the Logos, the mind of God which made the world and makes sense of it. John tells us that the very mind of God was manifest to us in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. In verses 5 through 8, then, we see the very mind of God, as I just got through reading, we see the very mind of God being displayed for us, then, to do likewise. Jesus did these acts with absolute perfection. Jesus did everything that the Father desired for him to do because he was one with God, unified completely. And so, we have to have the mind of Jesus, who is the very mind of God, in order for there to be true unity in our diversity. Now, this is a divine task, though. And I'll repeat that, a divine task. So, there is a task of having the mind of God that it has to be divine. Now, one thing we have to understand, of course, the church understands, but the other others who may be listening that are not of the church, what I mean by that, that are not Christians, they have to understand that only the church can show what true unity looks like. God called the church to be unified and no other. He didn't call nobody else to be unified. He only called the church to be unified. And the church then is to be this idea of unity shining as lights in the midst of the darkness of the division in this world. 
Paul has given us the way to bring unity and keep the unity. But the problem is that as humans, we can't accomplish this in our flesh. We can't have the mind of God and know what He desires of us because we are just mere mortals. We are going to have to have help from someone in order to accomplish the task of unity. The someone is the same person that Jesus had when He walked the earth. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that enabled Jesus is going to have to enable us as well. We have the Spirit's participation. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 11 tells us that no one knows the mind of God except the Spirit of God. So the same Spirit that filled Jesus has to fill us as well. Jesus told us to tarry until the promise from the Father was come, that being the Holy Spirit being poured out on the day of Pentecost. Jesus knew we couldn't do what He asked us to do unless the Spirit was in our midst. So, we are to keep unity by having the mind of Christ, which is the mind of God, which can only be accomplished by the Spirit of God. We need that coming down of the Spirit in our midst. Now, you will notice that I have mentioned the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All three persons of the Trinity are important in our church dwelling. All three persons of the Trinity were involved in your salvation, and all three persons of the Trinity are involved in your church life, in our church life. If we really want to understand what true unity in diversity looks like, then you look at the three persons of the Trinity. All three are God, yet together they are God. Within the Godhead is perfect communion, perfect relationship. And it has been that way for eternity. I'll leave you with this. And I want you to ponder this yourself. I want you to think this through. When you first hear it, I want you to think it through. Think about it. A clear understanding of the Trinity will produce a right work of unity within the church community. Today's book recommendation is St. Augustine's City of God. This book, along with Augustine's Confessions, are two of the major works that he wrote and two of the major works that this world has been blessed by, and the church specifically has been blessed by. The City of God chronicles this view of the philosophical road that man has taken from the early days of the beginning of time and looking at Moses and Plato and Aristotle and all that all the way to the Christian church and Augustine does a really good job of leading the people in the right direction and pointing them directly to Christ. I encourage you to pick up this book, The City of God by St. Augustine.